Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for sticking around for through those commercial breaks. And we are joined by today's guest, Samson Mao. Samson, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. And for those who, I don't know, live under a rock, maybe aren't as well-versed in the Bitcoin space, uh, Samson, on top of being credited with being, I would call the father of Volcano Bonds, um, has most most recently made waves by changing and starting, I think, one of the coolest jobs ever uh, as a nation state orange pillar. How how uh, how has the transition been? I'll start there. So I guess um, I thought I might free up some time after Blockstream, but it's actually been even more hectic even after I stepped away. Um, but yeah, like I decided to focus more on Infinite Fleet, my game, and also on nation state orange pilling. And um, I felt I wasn't able to allocate enough time to Blockstream based on the current situation. But it seems like there's never enough time. The, everyone only has the same amount of hours in a day. And those hours just came, seem to fill up nonstop. So it's, a, it's still a challenge trying to keep my head above water, keep messages replied to and everything. But there's a lot of people that are very interested in Orange Pilling Nation States, and they're all reaching out and trying to see what they can do to help. Well. How does talk to us a little bit about how that works? Uh, I'm not asking on behalf of any countries or anything, but do you find that it's uh, an intermediary asking on behalf of legislators of a country, or is it maybe a lower level legislator that's making the initial contact for you? How does that conversation start? Typically, it's uh, Bitcoiners in that country or region that are that have a few other like-minded individuals, and they have some contacts, and then they reach out and they. They try to see what we can do, and they usually ask, like, how did it happen in El Salvador? They're very interested in what went on behind the scenes, and I kind of try to explain it's very organic, and no two orange pills are going to be the same. They're going to be very much tailor-crafted to the local politicians, um, you know, geopolitics and regional differences, and what they can do with Bitcoin in the framework of the existing law and what resources they could potentially throw at doing a Bitcoin bond. Like, do they have volcanoes, et cetera? I do have to ask about the volcano bond because I think it's one of, one of the most interesting uh, pieces of financial artwork, if you will, that is being introduced. I think the way you guys have tried to put this together and build it out is admirable. And I hope that it does become a playbook to be replicated beyond volcanoes, beyond just like this idea. Talk to us a little bit about how, how the idea came to be and what you can share about it. Sure. So um, we, were, we, uh, we at Blockstream were introduced to people advising the president and people in the El Salvadoran government um, through Jack Mahler's when he was doing the, uh, the Bitcoin beach and Bitcoin legal tender stuff. So uh, very early on, they wanted to get a letter of support from Blockstream. So Adam and I wrote this letter saying, you know, we support El Salvador to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And I think Jack Mallers also wrote a letter and that kind of gave them the encouragement to go ahead with it. And then Jack made the historic announcement at uh, Bitcoin 2021. And then after that, we started advising them on a number of topics like uh, Bitcoin cold storage, Bitcoin security, Bitcoin wallets. And then we kind of slid in this idea out there. Well, why don't you actually do uh, a volcano bond, because that was already mentioned in the Twitter sphere, uh, Bitcoin Twitter, by uh, both Max Kaiser and Alistair Milne. So they had kind of seeded the idea because El Salvador has volcanoes and they can mine with volcano energy and 
I think these guys said, why not do a bond? So we kind of proposed how to actually um, structure something and use Bitcoin as a component of that uh, bond. So we tabled three proposals. One was the one that people know currently, which is half of the bond capital raise goes towards buying Bitcoin. The other one was a future flow model where effectively they would set up a mining operation and share profits of that operation to the bondholders. And the third was just simple, no Bitcoin, just plain tokenized bonds. So using um, a blockchain to trade it, transport it, similar to like a stable coin. And then the president decided to go with option one. And then we announced it on the stage and the rest is history. That's pretty cool, Samson. Uh, and I guess sticking with, with the bonds topic, I know uh, you said you want to keep it brief, but uh, I know you just tweeted or retweeted um, someone that said this morning that Ecuador is thinking about introducing like a hydro bond. So um, I, I was talking with Q right before you came on and we were just talking about, is this a different way to find different green sources of uh, green energy in order for fundraising for basically different types, whatever it may be. Uh, and it's cool to see that hydro is the next one. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting, and it's emblematic of how the whole process works. So uh, someone in Ecuador reached out and said, you know, we do mining, and um, there's a lot of hydropower down here. Maybe a bond would allow um, somebody, maybe it's a government, maybe it's a utility, to generate the revenue needed to construct uh, a new hydro dam or to buy a hydro dam or do something. So we've discussed it uh, back and forth, and then he tweeted it out, and I retweeted him. But... Uh, I think it just shows that all of this nation state orange pilling happens at the grassroots level. It's not a top down thing where some president calls me and says, hey, we're interested in doing bonds. That's never how it works. Even in El Salvador, the initiative began at Bitcoin Beach through Bitcoiners working with people in El Zante to roll up this little mini ecosystem. And then it got the attention of Youssef, the advisor and brother to the president. Then the president got got wind of it. Right. So there is a, a very common theme here, which is it's just Bitcoiners doing their part and kicking off and fanning the flames of Bitcoin adoption. Sorry, I, I do. I do want to touch on a little bit. I, I love hearing the way that these bonds sort of were presented and created. Um, but for, forgive my ignorance with this question. And, and maybe I, I'm just seeing it the way that it was meant to be seen. But what is the difference between this volcano bond and MicroStrategy introducing their bond to then turn around and buy more Bitcoin. Is, is there a overall big picture difference? And then obviously in the nuances, we have a private company versus a nation state introducing bonds. Yeah, so I would say uh, nation state adoption is at a higher tier than uh, corporate Bitcoin adoption. Um, I guess when MicroStrategy is raising uh, capital through debt to buy Bitcoin, it is it's a bit different. Uh, It's structurally similar, but it is a bit different. So with these bonds, they're allocating capital to invest in Bitcoin mining, Uh, whereas MicroStrategy is more about increasing the valuation of their company through their Bitcoin reserves. Um, I think the Bitcoin bonds, the way they're structured right now, specifically the volcano bonds, um, which are named because they're tapping into geothermal energy to mine Bitcoin, are more interesting because it aligns a nation state to do Bitcoin mining, right? And I think a lot of people miss this point, which is a nation state is going to invest half a billion dollars into energy and mining infrastructure. And at times in which uh, I think the EU just 
voted against banning proof of work. But in times where we're in doing clown world and people are making crazy things and trying to shut down energy production facilities because they don't think they're green enough or uh, ESG enough or whatever reason, it's really good that you have a nation state actually investing heavily into Bitcoin mining. And I think that serves to prevent the ban of Bitcoin and the ban of proof of work and other crazy things like that. It's like um, a defense against the insanity in some ways. But I think it's also a very big step because normally these big utility companies, uh, so in El Salvador, it's Laheo, um, and other places like in Canada, it's, uh, you can have Hydro, Quebec, BC Hydro. They're not really first movers and they're not innovators. So the difficulty to get someone like, um, let's say Hydro Quebec, they're sitting on massive hydropower reserves to do Bitcoin mining, I would say is almost impossible. It's very politicized and it's very bureaucratic and they're not very nimble, but you can have uh, the geothermal utility in El Salvador start mining Bitcoin. And I think that might kick off um, more more uh, power companies doing that. And the next one might be Ecuador, says, as we saw, they're interested in hydro bonds. So the idea is starting to take hold. The little seed that was planted is starting to grow. So I guess now we're pivoting away from the bonds and going more on to your past a little bit and then kind of what you see for the future. So obviously you were at Blockstream as the chief strategy officer there for, I believe, just over five years or right around five years. Uh, so how was it working with Adam back, seeing the company growth, and then ultimately, uh, I guess, leaving to do uh, a nation state orange pillar? How has that journey been? Um, it's very interesting. Um, when I joined Blockstream, it was after I was at BTC China. So I guess the, the, the route I've traveled is running an exchange, a mining pool, and then trying to work on the next important thing. And at the time, I was very sure, and I think I was right, the next important thing was Bitcoin infrastructure. Because coming out of the Bitcoin scaling wars, the, the block size wars, whatever you want to call it, it was apparent that there are many attack vectors on, on Bitcoin. There's a lot of ways that you can try to co-opt the system to take it over. And one of those major things was the decentralization of mining. Um, with the over-concentration in China and with just a few companies, it is a little bit dangerous, right? And that was the prong of the attack, which was Bitmain leading the charge saying, you know, we're going to uh, change the block size and there's nothing you can do about it because we're the, the biggest miner and we produce the ASICs and we have the mining pools and et cetera, et cetera. So at least with Blockstream, we, I think we started the exodus of uh, hash rate decentralization. So we were one of the first to actually set up in North America at scale uh, in, in Quebec and then in Georgia in the US. Um, I think a lot of other companies have started going that route, as we've seen. I think there's actually a danger that we might be over-concentrated in the US now. And that's why I think Nation State Orange filling and getting Latin America to start mining is an important next step. But just going back to Blockstream, um, a lot of the tech that Blockstream has been working on is very crucial to the ecosystem. Layer two scaling technologies like the Lightning Network that's allowing uh, micropayments, allowing Bitcoin to be used as a, uh, a currency. Um, Liquid Network, rebooting the financial system, which enables things like creating tokenized bonds or securities. 
So there's a number of things that Blockstream has done uh, in the past five years that has made the Bitcoin network overall more resilient. Um, another one, of course, is the Blockstream satellite. So keeping nation states in sync with the network in case an undersea cable is cut and the internet is shut off, or even if the government shuts off the internet, you can't stop Bitcoin because the blocks are still coming from satellites in geosynchronous orbit. So that's kind of uh, building a defensive shield around Bitcoin. And now I think is the time to go on the offense a bit and orange pill the nation states, because now I think Bitcoin is more robust. The network is more secure <clears throat> and in a better place. So now we can try to get more decentralization in mining, uh, more Bitcoin adoption, uh, uh, more financial instruments built on Bitcoin and using Bitcoin as a basis. I'm trying to figure out the most careful and respectful way to phrase my next question. But what I'd like to understand or know from you is what are some criteria you are looking for in countries that you want to go after? I've very loudly on this show brought up sort of the the opposite of Austrian economic theory, which is the countries that are going to be most incentivized to adopt Bitcoin early on are those that are furthest away and have, who have essentially been left out of the benefit of the US dollar dominance. Is there something that you're paying attention to? Is it they're dealing with hyperinflation? They have a certain number of miners or hash rate exposure. Is there, so, is there any factor at all? Or is it just, hey, if, if you're open to hearing me talk, I'm open to talking to you? I would say it's the latter. If you're open to talk, I'm willing to talk. Um, you know, I've had criticism um, and critics say, you know, why are you helping nation states get Bitcoin? They shouldn't get Bitcoin. We should uh, abolish all, all nation states and, you know, Bitcoin doesn't need anybody. But I think that would be a strategic blunder because nation states and countries are not going to go away next week. Um, I think there is a process at play right now, which is the separation of various powers from nation states. And maybe nation states are not well designed to function in um, an era where information is free flowing and borderless, right? Like a lot of uh, the protectionism that comes with a nation state is anchored on the old way, which is, you know, if you want to work here, you need to apply for a work visa and then you can get a job and it's all kind of grounded on physical proximity-based labor, but with the advent of knowledge workers where you can just pick your laptop and work anywhere, do those boundaries make sense, right? Like if I went to, uh, I don't know, France and I answer a work email, am I working there? You know, <laughs> it's kind of a, a new frontier and I don't think everything is equipped to deal with that. But you know, I think it goes back to the original point I made, which is, it's better to orange pill the nation state and have them adopting Bitcoin. And then you have that osmosis to the populace. So you know, let's take Salvador as an example. So they adopted Bitcoin, they made Bitcoin legal tender, and now they're pushing out multiple initiatives to get the people of El Salvador using Bitcoin. And the Chiva wallet is one of those. And you could criticize that and say, well, it's a government wallet. Um, they have all your KYC information, uh, they can monitor your transactions, it's centralized. But I would rather look on the bright side, which is they're getting everyone a Bitcoin wallet. They're educating people about Bitcoin. And that to me is more important than you know, how they did it. Because how they did it, you know, that can be fixed. You can tell people to use Stripe, to use a, 
uh, Blockstream Green or Blue Wallet or anything else, once they understand Bitcoin and they have that exposure to Bitcoin, you can improve upon it. So, you know, in software development or product development, this is like MVP, minimum viable product. It's a, a good first step. It's not the best step, you know, the best step would be everyone goes to school and learns about how to custody their own keys and uh, download a non-custodial wallet and run a node, actually. That's even better. But I'll take the I'll take the small wins and then I'll try to parlay the small wins into bigger wins. But you have to start somewhere. I, I want to ask, though, while I love the work that you have been pushing forward in El Salvador, Max Kaiser has been instrumental as well. We're watching Bukele really aggressively take the steps, not really let anyone dictate to him what they want to get done or accomplish. Um, but with that, unfortunately, has come some backlash from El Salvadorian citizens. Not all of them are on board with the Bitcoin adoption. What of your conversations within El Salvador have you seen to help appease some of these people, help them be educated beyond just, in essence, like, I'm going to throw, throw a piece of technology onto you. I, I speak from a place of ignorance when I ask something like this, but like, is the whole country of El Salvador, do they have internet access across the board or is it centrally located in only some of the more majorly, uh, de more developed areas and regions of that country as well? I think the internet rollout is uh, pretty good. Um, I, I remember reading stories about people in remote regions able to pay their bills now. Uh, maybe it was El Zante, but you know, they, they don't need to take a bus for a few hours to go and physically pay their bills, but they can pay it on their phone. So I think internet coverage is pretty broad and comprehensive. Um, the other part of your question about uh, are there people that don't like the Bitcoin law or don't like the Bitcoin adoption? Definitely, I think there are, but it's a very small minority. And it is very much rooted in the, the politics of the region. There's a, a definite overlap between people that don't like the Bitcoin adoption with the opposition parties of the current president. So you have to take a look and see what's going on there. Like there were protests and the protests were um, broadcasted, but then someone put a drone up and they, they filmed the, the protesters. And it's like a, the photos make it look like there's a lot of people. But when you look at it from a higher level, it's just a small small group right there. And, you know, it, the photos can uh, definitely distort the reality. And I think the media are very good at using that. And there's a lot of uh, opposition media there in El Salvador, right? They, I think um, over time, it'll probably um, fizzle out just because it's not real. I don't think anyone is anyone can be really opposed to economic prosperity for their country and the development of their country, right? So often I get attacked in the El Salvadoran media too. So I'm like, you know, I'm trying to help you guys, but you're like uh, bashing me for coming to El Salvador and spending money there. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. But um, yeah, I think in the long run, as the country develops and there's a lot of initiatives uh, to build out the country, they're building roads and proving roads, they're building uh, you know, Chivo Pets, the pet hospital. There's a lot of big projects underway. Bitcoin City, of course, too. And I think as El Salvador develops, people will just accept that, you know, Bitcoin brought this here. Bitcoin is a force for good. Uh, economic prosperity is a good thing. You know, my children can go to a good school now and they'll have a good future. And I don't think anyone can be against that. Yeah, um, I think that's all really great points. And even to your point, Samson, that 
many people that are against it for political reasons, uh, we always say on this show, and just many Bitcoiners agree that, you know, Bitcoin's apolitical. You know, it doesn't care if you're red, blue, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever it may be, you know, Bitcoin's for everyone. And it's, it's there for everyone, regardless of who you work for, what color your skin is, race, political beliefs, and all of that. Um, with that being said, so I guess uh, I know I had Q and I have not had a chance to go to El Salvador yet. That's definitely on our bucket list, uh, be- hopefully before the end of the year. But I guess how quickly have you seen? Obviously, Bitcoin is very volatile in terms of its ups and downs, uh, and th- wealth uh, can change in an instant. You know, for the better or the worse, when these things happen. How have you seen being at El Salvador the wealth of Bitcoin adoption help them and grow? And, and what kind of growth have you seen? Would you call it exponential as well, or has it been very volatile? Sorry, is a, your question was about Bitcoin adoption? Uh, I meant just like the benefits that the people are seeing there. So has like uh, in terms of the adoption and the benefits that they've uh, reaped in El Salvador themselves. I think it's still early. Adoption is not as high as I think it should be. And that probably has to do with the rollout of Chivo and the hiccups they had along the way. So the first trip I went, um, a lot of merchants were they, they had a QR code and then they said, well, actually, we don't accept GVO payments right now because there's problems with the app, right? And we all know that there were problems. Um, but I think now it's getting to a much better place. Lightning payments work now. So I think they just have to do another push and uh, touch base with all the merchants again and say, you know, it works now. You can, you can try it. But um, it's, it's going to be a, a gradual process, I think. But I believe that Chivo was the right move just so that, so just so that people can convert um, Bitcoin to dollars instantly when they take a payment because their costs are in dollars and then they don't need to deal with the volatility. So you know, no matter our beliefs on the fiat money, it still has a, a practical purpose in this day and age. And you can't disregard it and just say everyone except Bitcoin right now or else, right? It has to be a gradual change and organic adoption. But um, yeah, I think it's going to get better. And I think the, the benefits will become more apparent as Bitcoin keeps appreciating in value. And this is also why I think um, the nation state Bitcoin mining is important because it, it aligns interests in Bitcoin's long-term nature. Bitcoin is not a short-term thing. It's, it's, uh, you know, it could be seen as real estate, right? It's, you don't look at your house every day and see, oh, how much is my house today? Oh, it's down. Um, you know, I've I better sell it, you know, but you're going to live there for a while, maybe 10 years, 20 years or more, but it's the same with Bitcoin. And if we can align more people to understand Bitcoin's long-term value proposition, I think they will become less concerned with the short-term volatility. My fellow plebs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th, is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four-day-long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. 
Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. There's an old saying in a financial market. It's not about timing the market, but rather timing the market. It's not about timing your Bitcoin buy. It's about having it for as long as possible uh, and maintaining and holding your own coins. I think that is one of the most important things, Samson, that you're discussing here. It's this next iteration of Bitcoin is what El Salvadorians are being taught. They were introduced to Bitcoin. They were introduced to the Lightning Network. Jack Mahler did God's work by helping everyone get strike, by making sure strike worked in El Salvador. But now, if it's, if it's not in your custodial wallet, it is not your coin ultimately. And so this is sort of that next iteration. I want to go, what does that next step look like? Say Chivo works out or whatever wallet system works out, El Salvador has an adoption rate that you're, you're seeing as more acceptable or more palatable what is the next iteration of educating El Salvador's now that we have people, a majority of people with wallets and their own coins on their wallets? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Q. So I'm not sure where it's going to come from, if it's going to come from a top-down approach from the government or from a bottom-up uh, grassroots movement. Uh, but I think the next step is educating people to take custody of their Bitcoin. And maybe it's not that high of a priority right now because adoption and uh, usage of Bitcoin is still not that high. But once it reaches a certain threshold, um, let's say a few million people have a you know, couple hundred dollars of Bitcoin in their wallets, then I think it would be definitely worth pushing that initiative and getting them to uh, self-custody, either through a light wallet or a full node, ideally. But um, it, I'm not sure where it's going to come from yet. But uh, We'll see. I think it might be more likely that it comes at a grassroots level. Um, maybe it is just from more Bitcoin companies going to El Salvador, setting up shop and hosting uh, sessions and training people. I do want to give a, a quick nod and shout out to both Bitcoin Magazine and the Built with Bitcoin Foundation, uh, having helped set up some schools down in El Salvador to help push some of this education forward. Uh, you can find articles posted on Bitcoin Magazine about this. Bitcoin Magazine helped donate a boat for uh, some individuals in El Salvador, for a community in El Salvador, to be able to go ahead and uh, transport themselves to and from the school, pay for this boat with Bitcoin in the same way that you would pay a couple dollars or a few cents uh, for access to a bus. So we're watching it happen in real time, and it's really exciting to see. Samson, I want to now, I know that we've, you have a broad list of places that you're talking and it's very much open. You mentioned at the very beginning that in each iteration of orange peeling a country, it's different. You don't use the same playbook. What happened in El Salvador may not necessarily work in Turkey and that may not necessarily work in Mexico. I'm just throwing out two different countries because both of those in particular have seen really bad inflation. Can you talk a little bit without giving away your playbook, of course, uh, about what the bullet points are when a country is dealing with inflation that you want to highlight and show why Bitcoin helps them deal with the inflation that they have in their country? Right. So it's difficult. Like Typically, countries suffering inflation have their own fiat currency. And that kind of makes it more difficult for them to adopt Bitcoin. So it's almost like you're trying to convince a, a shitcoin or you know, give up your shitcoin and just go with Bitcoin. Right? They're going to resist because they have something and they have a central bank that is accustomed to being able to quote unquote, manage the economy, right? So 
it, it's, it's more challenging for sure, but I definitely think uh, countries suffering inflation or hyper, hyperinflation will eventually become amenable to the idea of adopting Bitcoin. And I say that because I think it's about the people. Um, if the, the governor of central bank or the chair of the central bank changes and you bring in something, uh, someone that understands Bitcoin, understands technology, I think that is an opportunity. Um, if you're dealing with the, you know, the old incumbent people that have been there for decades or whatever, it might be a difficult, a, a difficult pill for them to swallow. And you have to see, or things get really bad and you really go into uh, dollars, the paper currency becoming worthless and just like piling up in the streets. And at that point, I think you just have no choice. Either you do a reset and you repeat the history again, or you go with Bitcoin. And I think in the past, countries would do that. They would just, you know, scrap the old currency, make a brand new one and wait for it to decline again. But now with El Salvador, um, also with Lugano, um, Paulo Ardino, he orange-pilled the city. And that's also a, a nice example too. Like you don't need to orange-pill a country. You can also orange-pill a city and get de facto legal tender too. But you know, with these two examples, I think you could not ethically say we're going to just redo the currency and issue a new fiat currency to replace the old worthless one. You have to talk about Bitcoin. That discussion is now on the table and it cannot be ignored. So that's how I would see it playing out in that particular scenario. For Mexico, again, it's a, a bit of a, a different playbook again, because uh, you have a Mexican senator pushing for it very aggressively, um, Senator Indira Kempis. And she's getting people together, starting to formulate uh, a draft for a law, and she's actively orange-pilling the president. So, you know, it's a different formula in every place, and maybe it's just uh, going to work itself out. So maybe the, the arrangements in different places are actually suitable for those different places. So maybe you do need the senator in Mexico because they do have a very strong central bank and you know the central bank does not like Bitcoin, right? And you have a group of people there that have been fighting in the central bank. Um, you know, um, there was a time at which the central bank wanted to uh, close down all Mexican exchanges. So they've had these fights before. So I think you kind of have a resistance group there now. <laughs> and maybe that is the group that will help us get Bitcoin legal tender in Mexico. So I guess that's the, the answer. There is a, a lot of different ways things can play out and a lot of different strategies that can be employed. I have two questions off of everything you've just said. Uh, and I'll start with the first one. And I, I can, it can be applied to anywhere. It could be applied to Mexico. It could be applied to America. Uh, I have reached that point in my life where nothing a politician says, I believe. I just, it doesn't matter who you are, what, what you say, what you do, what party it is. I don't believe you anymore. Why is it in the Bitcoin community, we seem to be so much more open-minded now to all of these political campaigns that are saying, I'm running under a Bitcoin platform. I'm going to do this with Bitcoin. And yet we've been grifted for generations at this point. Are there different levels of conversations that you're having that makes you feel more confident in some of these? Or do you also go in with a healthy bit of skepticism? I would say a bit of both. Um, 
you know, I, I'm very much of the same mindset as you, Q, which is, you know, politicians typically will talk to you when they're trying to get elected and then they disappear. So in Canada, you know, when it's election time, you see a lot of posters and they're making their rounds and then you don't see them for four years. <laughs> and that's when they try to govern you from afar. But um, maybe Bitcoin changes things. Maybe Bitcoin fixes the incentives. Uh, maybe Bitcoin makes people think more for the long term. Like in the U.S., you have Senator Cynthia Loomis, right? And she's doing some good work. Um, I, I think it's a, a bit of everything. Maybe people see how broken the world is now. They see the fiat system is not going to work. And they really do want to fix something for the future. But it is very diff difficult because for politicians, it is they operate on very short time horizons, right? They're working to get reelected. They need to be populist. They need to be supported by a broad base or else they're not going to get elected. If they go and say very incendiary things and they say, you know, we got to drop this and just go Bitcoin right now, then they can't appeal to that broad base. Like there's a, their own system they have to work within. And I think from, from a Bitcoiner point of view, you have to understand that and give them some of their tools because we are not politicians. We don't play that game. At least I don't play that game. And I don't want to play that game, right? I'd rather just say what I think than to say what people want to hear. But I think there's a way to align all the interests. And Bitcoin is a big part of that. Because Bitcoin is going to let, um, let a nation state become prosperous. There might be difficult decisions that have to be made. And there's probably going to be some pain along the way. And this is why I have a great deal of respect for President uh, Bukele, because you know, he's getting slammed all the time in the media by his opposition because Bitcoin prices down a little bit right now, right? So he's in the red. But I think in uh, 10, 20 years, he's going to be looked on as a hero. In 100 years, he's going to be a, a legend, you know, the guy that saved El Salvador from conflict and debt and poverty. So it's really about what game you want to play. Do you want to get re-elected as a politician? Do you want to get re-elected and just sit there and do nothing? Or do you want to become an important part of history, uh, a figure that people will revere for all time? And I think the incentives for Bitcoin is, you know, let's do that. Let's, let's be the good guy. Let's be the hero. I love that. I think, I think Cynthia Loomis and Bukele are two, two of the good ones out there fighting the good fight. Uh, I do think that there are some other grifters, both in office and not in office. So a healthy bit of skepticism while still being open-minded. I love that approach, Samson. Second question that I have, we, you touched on a little bit about the city in Switzerland that I'm not going to even try to pronounce given my voice is such a, such a wreck and a mess. We have El Salvador. We had legislation introduced in the state of Arizona. We had it, uh, legislation introduced, I believe, by Cynthia or by the mayor of Jackson. And then there is a political uh, governor candidate in Georgia also pushing to introduce Bitcoin as legal tender. We've had conversations about what that could look like legally speaking in America. But talk to us about the differences between just a city adopting it versus a nation state adopting Bitcoin. Right. So in Lugano, it is effectively de facto legal tender. So the government will accept it for all services. And then another part of that equation is, I think, a, a brilliant move by Paulo, which is setting up a fund that will empower the businesses to accept Bitcoin. So it's kind of 
like their version of Chivo, which is they'll create the software layer and have people on the ground to go out to different businesses to integrate Bitcoin and Lightning payments and Tether payments too, and to kind of hook everyone up. And you have a blessing from the city because they cannot make Bitcoin legal tender because Switzerland has its own currency and what is money is determined at the federal level, not the city level, unfortunately. But um, it is the important step. And again, it illustrates that every place will have its own unique uh, solution to the different problems faced to adopt Bitcoin. So by making it de facto legal tender, you almost have the same thing. And then, of course, Switzerland has always been historically very favorable to people trying to um, uh, maintain their wealth or protect their wealth, right? So there is no capital gain. So overall, I would say, starting in Lugano, you have the makings of uh, effectively a mini El Salvador, right? And I think that was one of their goals, that they want to be the, the Bitcoin city of Europe. And it's a, a very clever way to do it in the end. Yeah, Samson. So uh, I, I'm glad that you brought up the point of, uh, you know, senators, presidents or whatever, politicians having short time preference or short time horizon. Obviously, they're trying to get elected uh, for the next cycle, midterms, whatever it may be. Uh, while Bitcoin is very volatile and, you know, it goes up and down a lot, uh, I guess, what do you see the risks of, let's just say you're like Bukele or, or the next person to adopt it, but then we go through a, a, like a brutal bear market? Obviously, that kind of hinder, I would say, hinders their chances. So I, I hope that we don't get to a point where while people are adopting it, they're having the negative side effects and then basically uh, thwarting adoption for either their country or city or whatever. Uh, and obviously, the political opponents will use that to their benefit, saying like, this is a bad investment or, or um, a bad um, idea. I guess as you being a nation state uh, orange pillar, how do you try and combat that FUD while you go into new nations or cities or states or whatever it may be? Um, you know, giving them, we've all been through bear markets or at least seen the volatility of Bitcoin. How do you prep them for things like that? Well, it's, you can never prep someone for a, <laughs> a big drawback and, and a bear market, right? They have to feel it for themselves and they have to survive it, right? In many ways, Bitcoin is survival of the fittest. Either you can take it or you sell. And then the money goes to uh, stronger hands. But this is why I like um, getting nation states to mine Bitcoin. Buying Bitcoin is good. And buying it as part of a component of a Bitcoin bond is good too. But with the mining operation, they're effectively dollar cost averaging, right? You make that upfront capital investment and you can get Bitcoin over you know, three years, four years. If you re-up your hardware, then keep going, right? But once you have all the facilities, energy infrastructure in place, you're, you're good to go. And we've done, well, sorry, at Blockstream, they've done a lot of modeling and backtesting um, with Bitcoin mining, because there's always a question in people's mind, is it better to buy Bitcoin or to mine Bitcoin? And the answer is, unfortunately, it depends, right? In a bear market, then it is better to mine Bitcoin. In a bull market, it's better to buy Bitcoin. So by having a little bit of both, right? effectively, they've de-risked their Bitcoin strategy and they, they can withstand that volatility. Because during the bear market, I think like a nation state doesn't need to shut off their mining operation, right? It's their own power. Like, it's different for like you and me. If we go, you know, set up a mining farm somewhere, and the the, the price of Bitcoin craters, and we're we're still paying, you know, our fixed cost, uh, our variable cost, then it's going to be painful for us. But for them, it's like you know, 
that's our volcano. It's okay. We're going to leave the volcano on and keep mining. And I think this is what will help uh, with Bitcoin adoption in those scenarios, just having that dollar cost averaging. I want to have you maybe touch on a little bit of down this rabbit hole. Is it easier in certain instances to get countries on board with Bitcoin mining first versus legal tender? And what are the, it, would it be like an energy dominant com- country? Let's take that approach versus a country with a more damaged fiat currency. Let's take the legal tender approach. Is that something that gets weighed or considered in your approach? Not really. Um, it just, you have to play it by ear, I think. If you go in with some set strategy, like, okay, um, you know, you're suffering from heavy inflation, we're going to go this route. I think you would just close yourself off to other opportunities. I think just like be like water, you know, see where it goes, um, give advice where advice is needed, and try to steer things in a good direction. But don't go in with a set expectation that A, B, and then C is, is going to happen because that might not necessarily be the case. And um, maybe, um, for example, let's say in Mexico, right? Maybe mining will take place first, right? Because um, Ricardo Salinas Plego, Uncle Ricky, he's uh, interested in doing some mining. So maybe that might set the example when the when a billionaire of your country is starting mining that might change some people's minds. And then maybe one of the national utilities will start to look at it, or maybe he knows someone there, but you you kind of have to kick off that chain of events with something, something has to go first, but you never know what's going to go first. You don't know which domino is going to kick off, but you know, once it kicks off, you want to kind of push that fan the flames a bit and accelerate it as much as you can. Beyond hydroelectric mining and using and harnessing the energy from a volcano to mine, is there another form of clean energy mining that you are excited about, proud of, or showcase on your conversations with nation states? I like nuclear mining. <laughs> I think um, nuclear energy is often demonized um, with, with no good basis. Um, and it just comes from a place of fear because there have been accidents, but a lot of the accidents are basically human error or just poor planning of where you built the facility, right? But the the process, the technology itself is not a bad thing. And if you think about it, effectively, most of our energy on earth is a derivative of nuclear energy, right? Like, where's the, where's the solar power come from? <laughs> the sun is a, a giant ball of nuclear fusion, right? Uh, um, same with wind, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, nuclear power, in my view, is the cleanest because if you do it correctly, the the damage, the potentials for meltdown are actually quite low. And the beautiful thing about nuclear is you can you can effectively set up anywhere, right? Um, with hydro, you need to find the water supply, right? The the river, build a dam, build a reservoir. Um, with a geothermal, you have to find the the geothermal wells, right? You have to find some dormant volcano, not active, dormant volcano, uh, and build next to that. And you know, with nuclear, you could just build it anywhere you want. If the technology becomes advanced enough, you can have very small micronized reactors that just are in the middle of some field somewhere, right? It, it's not, there's not needed to be in proximity to something else. And with that, you solve a lot of problems like transmission, um, that's one of the biggest problems with energy production. 
the source at which it's produced is not necessarily where you need it. So you have to transmit that and you need a lot of additional infrastructure to move and convert the, the voltage and just get it to where it needs to go. But with nuclear, you can effectively build a, a grid somewhere, build plants wherever you need them and supply energy to where you need them. It, it is unfortunate because I, I think both Chris and I were literally chatting Oh my God. Yes. Thank God. Because we are big fans of nuclear, both as far as capitalizing the energy for mining, as well as just, I don't know, changing our energy grids to capitalize the best energy system invented by or discovered by man. Um, I am curious, what is a, I'm sure there has been, and maybe there haven't, uh, what is the pushback against nuclear in these conversations that you have in reference to Bitcoin mining? Or is it just very much like, oh, you know what? We're we're on board with that. How do we how do we implement that and Bitcoin mining? We don't have nuclear reactors yet. What are the steps to take? Um, are you being turned into a, a nuclear energy expert in that type of dialogue? Well, I've always been interested in nuclear energy, and I think it is the future for humanity because energy is the basis upon which civilization is built, starting from fire, right, at a very basic level. But um, if we don't build nuclear reactors, starting from fission reactors, we're not going to get to fusion reactors, right? Which is the safer one. And we're not, not going to have enough energy to sustain ourselves. Right? I, I don't think the policies of energy austerity are, are useful. It's uh, a well-meaning thing thought about from well-meaning idiots, which is let's not use so much. Let's turn off all the lights and you know we'll put on an extra jacket on when it's cold, but you know, if you're not incentivizing development of new supplies of energy, then we can't grow. We can't do more interesting things or create more interesting industries that will take us to the future. We're just going to be, you know, trying to keep our lights off and sit in the dark and in the cold or, or you know, sweat in the heat, depending on where you live. Right. But you need energy to do everything, pretty much anything that people want to do. So I guess, uh, yeah, we are probably going to become all energy experts um, just because Bitcoin and energy are linked together very tightly, right? Like Bitcoin mining is the effective use of energy. And the end state of a Bitcoin miner, I believe, is going to be becoming an energy producer. Either you're going to have your own hydro dam or your nuclear plant or solar farm or whatever, but you're going to own those assets in addition to the ASICs and the buildings and the containers and the transformers. That's the inevitability at the end of the day. Uh, Samson, I'm going to selfishly ask, so while you're a nation state orange pillar, um, I, I'm curious just for uh, us being in the US, or I believe maybe you're in Canada, but for us in the US, have you had people reach out, whether from legislation about orange pilling uh, states per se, more than just Senator Loomis, or about incorporating um, Bitcoin into different state treasuries strategies? Um, I'll say yes. There's some people that have reached out. All right. That's good to know. Uh, I, I won't push you any more on that, Q, if you want to add or ask any more questions. I do I want to save it for the Bitcoin conference, right? All right. Sounds good. I, I like that answer even better. Uh, I, I think that'll help us sort of map out the rest of our conversation because we, we only have 15 more minutes, Samson. I know you have the, the craziest schedule of any Bitcoiner in the world, and we need to make sure you are, you're focused and doing the, the work that we need you to do. Um, 
I'll start with the Bitcoin conference. We are all going to be very, very excited to hear you speak. We are very excited to hear Bukele speak. But what are you excited for at Bitcoin 22? I'm excited to hear uh, Jordan Peterson speak. I'm a, a fan of his, and uh, I think he's been going down the rapid rabbit hole very, <laughs> very rapidly. Um, and I, I want to hear his uh, his spiel. He's always a, a very good speaker, and I hope one day I can reach his level. Well, if you guys uh, were not aware, Jordan Peterson, yes, that Jordan Peterson is going to be a speaker at Bitcoin 22. Uh, in addition to this morning, it was officially announced uh, Anthony Pompliano will be speaking and uh, Peter Thiel will also be speaking. And of course, our guest right now, Samson Mao, uh, use code YTMAG, get 10% off your Bitcoin 22 tickets. You know the rules. If you buy it here on while we're on live, we're going to make it rain stats in the chat over in YouTube. Um, I do want to take a question from our chat. Uh, and Samson, last week we saw Joe Biden introduce this executive order. Um, there were a lot of words in it. My interpretation of it was not that, oh, a CBDC is on the way. Oh, we're going to create Bitcoin legislation. My interpretation of it was, like most politicians, hey, we know this is something that's important to our constituents. So we're going to spend a lot of taxpayer dollars to learn about it in the most inefficient way possible. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts or what your takeaway was from uh, Biden's executive order. So my takeaway was they do want to do a, a central bank digital currency, CBDC. Um, it was not Bitcoin bullish enough for me. Uh, overall, it was very much about crypto. And, and just a lot of buzzwords thrown in there. I think it would have been a very stronger statement to say, you know, we're looking at Bitcoin adoption. Um, because I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think a CBDC is the thing for America. You know, America was founded on freedom and, and you know, what was the, what was the, the crux of that issue it was about taxation, right? And about not paying the British, the, the tax. So it just seems weird that America is not embracing Bitcoin at the level of, um, you know, El Salvador or something else, because Bitcoin is freedom and money is freedom and speech is freedom. And you cannot have freedom of speech without, freedom of money. So yeah, I don't know. Anytime any country is developing a CBDC, I kind of cringe because they always go about it in the wrong way. I don't think a CBDC would be a bad thing, but you have to do it correctly. You have to make sure that there is privacy built into it and there's no backdoor. But I think the temptation for a backdoor is just too too tantalizing for them to, to, to give up, right? Like, Canada, the Central Bank of Canada also wanted to do a CBDC. They posted a job description that effectively says, we want it to be private, but not too private. And to me, that's like saying, we want it to be money, but not too money, right? Like, it's just, you can't, you can't be halfway there and halfway here. It's either money or it's not money. And I think that's why Bitcoin has solved that problem because Bitcoin is just money. It is apolitical and permissionless. And the privacy, it's coming with layer two tech, right? But you know, if the US wanted to do a CBDC, I would say they should look at um, uh, Minimint, Chami and Mints, and Eric Sirion. I think he's also speaking at the Bitcoin 2022 conference. You know, that's something he's working on. And that would be something you should use for a CBDC if you wanted it. Or create your own liquid network, right? And you have confidential transactions built in. But the tech is all there. There's no need to research anything. And there's no way that you guys, the government or the Fed, will come up to the level of you know, Blockstream engineering to develop this tech. I'm a little 
curious though, what your thought process is on this, because ultimately, you know, human beings are greedy. And once they're giving a a little bit of power, you know, they'll take as much of it as they can and, and take it to, to lengths that ultimately are detrimental to society. History has shown us this uh, behavior in human beings and in our political leaders and leaders otherwise. Why are we open to any sort of a CBDC? What is what is the benefit uh, of allowing a central government to have some form of currency rather than separating the financial markets from our states? Well, I definitely think we should separate a lot of things from the state. Um, <clears throat> but a CBDC is really just a... It's it's like a stable coin, but issued by the state, right? So, stable coins do have a purpose right now. They are useful for people to mitigate Bitcoin volatility and to take their current take payments in the in dollar amounts or whatever amounts, so that they don't have risk with their suppliers, right? Due to volatility, and I think it it'll just be around for some time until we reach that full hyper Bitcoinization state. And I think many of the stablecoin issuers are of the same mindset. So Paolo has said himself, you know, Tether is not going to be around forever, like at least Tether USDT, because eventually we won't need it. But it is a tool right now, just like the Chivo wallet is a tool right now that is useful. And having useful tools is a good thing. But the problem with a CBDC is they'll never get it right. right? And they're also competing against stablecoins. So the battle ahead is going to be very interesting because the freest money will always win. And the way that we're going right now, a CBDC will have a number of controls on it and, or it'll be issued by uh, Chase or some bank, right? And they're never going to be able to make it freer than a stable coin is. So, I mean, my, my, my logical thinking here is if they could have done it, if let's say Chase or JP Morgan could do a stable coin, then they would have already banked the unbanked but they can't do that because they need everyone to produce ID and not everyone in the world can produce ID. So it's always going to be the case where it's only going to be serving a certain rich, well-off clientele. They're not going to be able to bank the unbanked and the people that don't have an address or you know can't produce a fixed address or don't have all the right documentation, right? But those people can always download uh, an app on their phone and and take a, a stable coin or take Bitcoin or whatever. I'm trying to digest what you've said because I think for, for the first time at, in our conversation, I, I'm not seeing eye to eye with you on this. I view the fiat system as a CBDC, just not digitized. It, it essentially is that it has all of the levers and all the manipulation tools for any centralized entity to do as they see fit. And ultimately, I feel like we're just playing the same game we have played for the last 600 plus years of once banking, once the banking industry was introduced and we have just a repeated cycle of we're on a gold standard, we go off a gold standard and we have fractional reserve currency and then boom, we're, we mess it up so bad. Uh, and historically speaking, it's always ends with the price fixing. The moment government steps in to price fix certain things, everything collapses. You lose incentives and you lose uh, the competitive nature that has driven us forward. Um, why would... I guess in this scenario, you're, you're talking, I'm just talking this out live with you. So bear with me. In this scenario, you have Bank of America, you have Chase, you have Wells Fargo. They each have their own CBDC that they introduced. So I guess the competitive nature is they are each incentivized to make theirs 
the cleanest, most efficient, most accessible one to get more people onboarded. But how is that any different than give us your savings account, take out a mortgage with us, because then once you take out the mortgage with us, we can print more money. And then Wells Fargo's balance sheet goes up. Right. So if it is a CBDC, it has to be from the central bank. So it'd be from the Fed. But I was outlining the case where they would use a, a commercial bank to get a wallet to people, right? Like you'd download the wallet from, from Chase or whatever, and then you can get your CBDC. I don't think the Fed will release an app, but uh, I, I don't think we're in disagreement. I don't think uh, CBDCs will be a good thing. I'm just saying in an ideal world, they could be done with privacy in mind and it would still be the dollar, right? It would not be a new currency. It would just be you know dollars on a blockchain. And I think we've, we've seen that there is utility to have a dollar on a blockchain you know, it, maybe Bitcoiners don't see that as much, but just look at the stablecoin market. It's, um, you know, Tether is 80 billion um, and all the other ones probably add up another 20 billion. So there's at least $100 billion of demand for stables in the marketplace. Maybe it's just for traders. Maybe it's just for people in developing markets that, um, developing countries that don't have a bank account and they just need something dollar denominated that they can move freely. But there is definitely some utility there. So I was saying, if, a central bank did it correctly and added privacy, it could be a good thing, but I doubt that will ever happen. It's just going to be the same garbage again and again, because that system cannot dig itself out of a hole. And that's why Bitcoin has to replace it. But until Bitcoin replaces it, there is a place for stable coins, maybe not CBDCs, but there is a place for stable coins. Okay. I think, I think if I digest this a little bit more into the evening, Samson, you've You've convinced me to see the greener pastures that are there with stable coins and with with uh, some sort of central bank uh, digitized token uh, coin. I do want to ask one last thing. We've seen the Lightning Network really pick up stream. Where do you stand as far as the idea or notion of we need to be u- using our Bitcoin and transacting it on a regular basis versus we need to be you know accumulating, hodling essentially? Yes, thank you. What, where, where is your stance on this? How do you see which of these do you think stands to benefit Bitcoin more in the short and long term? I think there is both. Hodling helps with uh, making the asset overall appreciate and reduce volatility in some cases. Spending is important too, because if you have a great store of value, but you can't spend it, then you effectively end up with gold. And we don't want to end up like gold. But I, I don't think we're going to encounter that situation. And you know, counter to what a lot of Bitcoiners might say, I think Bitcoiners are spending Bitcoin, right? Like when Bitcoiners go to El Salvador, they're spending their Bitcoin. But on, on Twitter, they might say, yeah, I'm hodling forever. But you know, I, I, I see in the real, in, on the ground, Bitcoin is spending Bitcoin. So it does happen. And I personally also spend too. Um, you know, using Bitcoin over Lightning, over Liquid is very easy. And... Uh, you know, if you can't spend it, it, uh, it would just end up uh, not being much better than gold. And um, also spending helps to distribute to people too. So when you're spending, you're actually creating new Bitcoiners in some way, right? And they might, you might spend it at a Pucusa shop in El Salvador, and then maybe they'll, they'll give some to their kids as an allowance, but you're kind of spreading the, the Bitcoin around and distributing it to more and more people when you are spending it. Um, I think people will be more open to spending when we have a, a full circular economy 
And this is something I've been talking about for a number of years, uh, the Bitcoin circular economy, which is earning and then spending Bitcoin, right? Typically, people are going to, they're earning fiat dollars and then they go and buy Bitcoin, which adds a number of bottlenecks and, and friction points, right? You have to go somewhere and buy the Bitcoin. Why do you want to spend it? It's just going to be more work and more annoying. But if I'm getting paid in Bitcoin and I can spend it on groceries, then I would just do that, right? Of course, I'll allocate some to saving, but I won't hesitate to spend because it, I'm getting streamed Bitcoin through the Lightning Network as pay. So I'll just use that because I need to spend on daily things like food and coffee or whatever. Yeah, uh, Samson, I definitely want to ask you a question. So preventing Bitcoin, obviously, it's very different than gold and many Bitcoiners agree and know about this. But um, I know there's kind of been a division in the Bitcoin community itself talking about um, the adoption of a spot ETF for Bitcoin. There we go. So many Bitcoiners see, oh, this is a good thing because people will take their 401ks or IRAs and put money into that in order to make the price go up and price appreciate. But you and I and Q all know that that's just kind of paper Bitcoin in a sense. Obviously, there's risk for the people that paper Bitcoin and whether they fractionally reserve it or not or fully back it is a different story. Do you see, uh, while the SEC has been blocking all the spot ETFs that have been put in by numerous companies, do you see this as a good thing, as a bad thing, uh, as indifferent? I guess, what are your thoughts on potential a spot ETF uh, in the Bitcoin markets for people that want to use either a 401k or an IRA? Well, it's a mixed bag. It's good for Bitcoiners because if uh, a spot ETF was approved, Bitcoin would probably jump to a million dollars a coin the next day, just because there's billions and billions of dollars of institutional money that want to buy a spot ETF in the US. You can buy it somewhere else, but there are US-focused institutions that will buy a US spot ETF. Um, it's good for Bitcoiners because you know we can keep stacking at uh, what's 38K, and that's, a, that's not a bad thing, right? But I think a spot ETF will be approved once Bitcoin gets to a million dollars a coin. It'll just be inevitable. They have to approve it at that point. Volatility will be lower and they'll be less worried about impacting price based on the regulation. Um, but you know, if they did approve it tomorrow, I wouldn't cry. It'd be a good thing because then Bitcoin would go to the moon. I challenge that. And I say, if Bitcoin's market cap surpasses gold, that is when we get the spot ETF. And I, I think the number, if I'm remembering it correctly, is something like 200 I think it's less than that. But some, somewhere in that realm where I think right now we have about 700, some, somewhere in the tune of 700 million, sorry, 700 billion market cap. Gold's market cap is 11 trillion. So I'm not going to do math in my head right now. I love doing math, but not today. So someone in the chat, do the math, but... That is my marker for when we get a Bitcoin ETF. To your point, Samson, absolutely. There's so much money tied up in IRAs from generations of US workers that they're dying and ready to put it into Bitcoin, but they're not able to absorb the tax losses of doing that. So it, it, it doesn't mean you own Bitcoin, but for some people, it actually could change their retirement schedule. It can change the way that they're able to approach retirement as a result, regardless of even holding any Bitcoin. If my dad were to say, hey, I took my entire IRA and put it into this ETF to like give me full Bitcoin exposure, look, I'm never going to see that Bitcoin. But like for his sake, for my mom's sake, that's going to be great for them. They'll be able to retire earlier in a more comfortable way. And that I think helps, again, 
push adoption a step further. If someone who's not a Bitcoiner hears their parents are now invested in Bitcoin in the IRA, you don't think they're going to take the time to go and educate themselves on Bitcoin as well? Exactly. Um, Samson, I think on, uh, on that very optimistic and positive note, we will wrap things up uh, with you. Please give our audience, uh, where, where can they find you, any socials or anything that you want to be sharing or plugging with them? Sure. On Twitter, my handle is Excelion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. And you can at me and um, yeah, that's it. Awesome, guys. And of course, don't forget, Samson will be speaking at Bitcoin 22. So if you want to hear him dive even deeper, be sure to buy your tickets and use code YTMAG to get 10% off. 